And we're live. Welcome to another episode of Face, Liberty, and Praxis. I'm sitting down with what Peter the 20th Century. How you doing, man? Good, good. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited for what we're reading today. Very, me very too. excited. I got sick. I love uh, doing the to know from the title. We're doing a live reading of Lost Bars of Strategy for the Light. Uh I read it for the first time this week and I was blown away. And I always forget how what's one of those guys, I forget how great he is until I go back and read something by him. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. You're amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I was reminiscing with a few people about this, um, you know, rereading it for this about just how it floors me every time I, I, I read this, Uh, it's like rereading it for the first time. Um, because it, it it really is one of Rothbard's best works. Um, and I really highly suggest everyone read it on their own as well. Um, after this stream, of course, but yeah, I, I, I think it is more, um, relevant today than it, it was in Rothbard's time. Um, and, and I think it's one that will stay relevant for basically ever. Um, you know, like even if we achieve the ideal society, I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> this is still going to be very relevant to what we're, um, uh, what's going on in our world. So I'm excited to read about it, especially cause it did, uh, inspire the name. So. Oh, nice. Uh, anybody listening, the link is in the description of the uh, chat, chat box. Um, and point out before we get into this, it was written in 1992, it looks like. So keep that in mind. This is written in the early 90s. And just keep that in mind as he talks about some of the things with the right. And he's kind of like, oh, that's that's still happening today. So, yeah. That's going to be a, a lot of fun. I'm going to say a screen. So if anybody wants to read along with the screen, if, they, if you can read it, it doesn't always pop up clear. Um. And again, shout out to the Mises Institute for being amazing to having everything I ever need to read available on here. And uh, let's just get into it. What I call the old right is suddenly back. The terms old and new inevitably get confusing when they new, new every few years. So let's call it the original right. The right has existed from 1933 to approximately 1955. This old right was formed in reaction against the New Deal and against the Great Leap Forward into the Leviathan State. That was the essence of the new state. That was the essence of the New Deal. This anti-New Deal movement was a coalition of three groups: the extremists, the individuals, and libertarians like H.L. Mencken, Albert J. Nock, Rose Wilder Lane, and Garrett Garrett. I just found out who Garrett Garrett was like two weeks ago, and I'm looking forward to reading more from him. Um. To right-wing Democrats, harking back to laissez-faire views from the 19th century Democratic Party, meant just as Governor Albert, Albert Ritchie, um, or Maryland, right, I would say Maryland, or, or Senator James A. Reed of Missouri. Three moderate New Dealers who thought that Roosevelt, Roosevelt, uh, the Roosevelt New Deal went too far. For example, Herbert Hoover. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say keep an eye while we're reading this uh, out for when he mentions uh, moderates and ru- new dealers, because um, really this group is a big part of of what happened to the old right and why it's not um, why it kind of died out, and then also kind of explains how the the new right came about and how neocons came about. So I would 
keep an eye on uh keep that in mind while we're reading this absolutely interest interestingly even though the libertarian intellectuals were in the minority they necessarily said the terms and the rhetoric of the debate since theirs was the only sought out con- contrasting ideology to the new deal the most radical view of the new deal was that of libertarian essayist essayist and novelist Garrett Garrett an editor of the Saturday Evening Post, his brilliant little pamphlet, The Revolution That Was, published in 1938, began with these penetrating words that words that would never be fully absorbed by the right. Yeah, these are those... Huh, there are those who still think that they are holding a path against the revolution that may be coming up the road, but they are gazing in the wrong direction. The revolution is behind them. It went, in, went by the night of depression, singing songs of to freedom. Yeah. yeah, I I think um here is where uh Rothbard starts to develop the idea and then also with what he says next um where I think Rothbard is um without explicitly saying it acknowledging the role of the Straussians which if you don't know who the Straussians are there's Leo Strauss who is a philosopher in the 20th century who kind of took from Machiavelli's whole argument about subverting politics and getting into it and took it to a whole new thing of where really the ideological battles should not be fought in the public sphere. They should not be fought in politics. It should be behind the closed doors of academia. And that's kind of what happened with the old right. And uh, what the role of the libertarian intellectuals was, was to be the Straussians and how effective it was. And then, um, I think what Rothbard says next illustrates my point better, actually, than just saying it. Sounds good. Also, this realize this is the first thing by Rothbard I've ever covered on the podcast. I have not touched a single Rothbard book, pamphlet, or anything in the entire almost a hundred episodes. It's wow. Uh, the revolution was said Garrett, and therefore revolution was said Garrett, and therefore nothing less than a counter-revolution is needed to take the country back. Behold, then, not a conservative, but a radical right. In the late 1930s, there was there was added to this reaction against the, against the domestic New Deal, a reaction against the foreign policy of the New Deal, the incessant drive towards a war in Europe and Asia. Hence, the right wing added a reaction against big government, uh, yeah, against big government ab- abroad to the attack of big government at home. The one fed on the one fed on the other. Sorry about any of the uh, reading errors today, guys. Uh, I walked all day in the field, and my brain is like just now kind of catching up to, you know, being on. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think with Rothbard says there too is also a really important one kind of thing where it's like this label of conservative and, and this idea of of conserving something is long past due. Yeah. What what we would be conserving if we were saying we want to conserve society now, um, is conserving something that is not right wing. Yeah, that is completely antithetical to the thing that built he covers uh, that later a bit actually with some um, talk about being yeah. conservative was I'm that was that's when I, that stood out to me most I think when I was listening to this was um that part really stood out but yeah that's a problem with the term conservative really is it's what do you want to conserve? Yeah I mean at the end of the day I think we have to acknowledge that what we want now is now regressive. Like there's a lot of like ooh this that's scary term regress, regress back, they're going backwards. But in most avenues of life, 
regression is going to be a good thing. Regression is going to be what is actually what we want. And I think we have to be somewhat honest about it. Maybe not say the words regression, but in his words, we have to be a radical right, not a conservative right, because the time of conservation is gone. The progressives have achieved lots of their goals and we're going down a path of destruction and we shouldn't want to conserve that path or conserve where we're at. One could say instead of aggressive, we need to start repealing some things. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so one could say that, though I don't want to give it away. <laughs> uh, what was I at? Um, in the late 1930s, there, there was added to this reaction against the domestic media reaction. Hold on, I already said the part. Sorry. Okay. Uh, here I am. The right wing called for ne- no- the right wing called for non-intervention in foreign as well as domestic affairs and denounced FDR's adoption of Woodrow Wilson's global crusading, which had proved so disastrous to in World War One to Wilson Roosevelt globalism. The old right counter was a policy of America first. Um, American foreign policy must neither be based on the interests of foreign powers such as Great Britain, nor be in the service of abstract ideas as making the world safe for democracy or waging a war to end all wars. Both of which would amount in the prophetic words of Charles A. Beard uh, to raise a perpetual war for perpetual peace. It, it really seems like the whole, um, a lot of the neocon ideas, if you imagine how um, Lou Walker talked about egalitarianism is like an unattainable goal to left hand and keep pushing for an unattainable goal. It seems like for the neocons, the war for peace, the war for the state for democracy is another example of one of those unattainable goals that they can always keep using to justify more state power. Yeah, uh, R- Rothbard brings this up later when he talks about this kind of um, Trotskyite to neocon pipeline, um, which I wish he established more and talked about more. Um, but um, either me or uh, if you know Marcel Gautreau, uh, which I know you know, but if if you're watching, if you know him, are going to develop more thoroughly and then talk about that. So keep an eye for out for that. Looking forward um, to that. Yeah, uh, but. Yeah, re- really, the, the 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 idea that pinpoints uh, neoconservatism and why it is basically just Trotskyism, but right wing, so called, is that it is a perpetual revolution, just as Trotsky wanted, but a perpetual revolution in the name of freedom, of peace, of liberalism, of democracy, um, but but. It, it will never achieve this. It knows that, and that's that's why they've achieved. That's um, why they achieve so much because they can keep saying the work has to be done. There's more work to be done. There's, yeah. um, and that's the same thing with with Trotsky uh, yeah. and Trotsky at thought. A lot, of, a, a lot of his stuff on um, the right, and this is I'm I've been listening to uh, the Vanishing Tradition by Paul Godfrey this week. And listening to that about how the, the neocons took over the right and kind of hearing the strategy for the right, there's a lot, um, a lot of great uh, neocons aren't right wing, and I'm tired of having to explain this to people. Like, I, I remember trying to explain to a friend of mine, he's like, that just sounds like a no true Scotsman fallacy that everyone you don't like is not right wing. I'm like, yes, everyone I don't like is left wing. That that's fail. <laughs> um, but it, it's just it's they're not right wing, and it's who was it? Uh, ben Hickman or whatever his name was, Hickman or. One of the uh, left-wing libertarian type guys said, "How he said um, to quote him, how the fuck are Republicans more anti-war than Democrats now?'" And I'm like, "They, the right's always been more anti-war than the left." I'm gonna just, I, had a, I don't want, I almost jumped in to explain it to him, but it's not worth it. It's just, it's not worth talking to some of these people. Yeah, uh, I, I was gonna bring it up later in my notes, but 
uh, since we're on it, I, I, I did write a Mises article that I'm going to plug here um, that was published recently on this exact talk, topic about, you know, the right, the right really has been the consistent anti-war mm-hmm. um, side of things, especially when it comes to the halls of power. When it comes to the halls of power, the left have been, you know, far more disastrous than the right in terms of this issue and also have, have done nothing to push back. Yeah, but uh, send me a link to that if you could. When you when you don't, oh, after this, I can put it in the description because I want to. That sounds really interesting. I want to read that. Yeah, I'll, I'll also put it in the chat now. Um, but yeah, if you thank you. Okay, where was I at? Um, and so the original right was completed. Com- combating the Leviathan state and domestic affairs, it said no to the w- welfare warfare state. <laughs> I like that. Um. The results of adding foreign affairs to the list was something. Was so, was, the result of adding foreign affairs to the list was some resuffling of members. Former writers such as Lewis W. Douglas, who had opposed the domestic New Deal, now rejoined it as internationalists. While veteran isolationists such as Senator Bohr and Nye, or intellectuals such as Beard, Henry Elmer Barnes, or John T. Flynn, uh, gradually, gradually but suddenly became domestic white wingers in the course of their determined opposition to the foreign new deal. Is anything you want to add on this? I'm fine with the next one. Um, yeah, I did want to just briefly add, um, here is where Rothbard establishes something that I think is important for libertarians to take into account that, um, really where we can say we can start allying with people, um, mostly people on the right um though i think there is sometimes where the left can be worked with but very narrow circumstances is it begins with their foreign policy views and really i think foreign policy views separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes mm-hmm. to not just people on the right but people in general i think um most other bad views are downstream from having a bad take on foreign policy yeah. Um, and while for, having a good take on foreign policy doesn't mean you're good on basically everything else or even most things, it is a very good like barrier to entry of like, mm. if you're not at least anti-war, if you're not here, um, then you can't be these other things. Yeah. Um, the standard that I use, which is a standard um, that Lou Rockwell used, it's on the top of his site, is anti-war, anti-state, pro-markets. In that order, I like it. I would say a good example of the understanding the right wing that is a good right wing who's anti-war but not going everything else. Um, every once in a while, I still go back and I watch the Daily Wire backstage people because I want to I want to see what the mainstream conservative ink is pushing and talking about. I can't was I was recently during the war, the war uh, when Ukraine and started having a, a war with Russia. Vince Peel is pushing hard how we have to help Ukraine and. Matt Watts and Michael knows that it's like, no, we have too many problems here. I'm pushing back against it. Very timidly, of course, because that is their boss. Um, but mm-hmm. it was a good instance of like, okay, these are right wingers that seem to actually have conversations and conversations with the workers and maybe talk to. Vincent Pierre is just too far gone. He's too much of a neocon thing to actually be worth really engaging with as, as seriously. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very true uh, for the most part. I mean, wacky things happen, uh, yeah. you know. Um, but but yeah, I I think that's largely true. Um, here we go. If we know what the old right was against, 
what were they for? In general terms, they were for a restoration of the liberty of the old republic, or of a government strictly limited to defense of the rights of private property. In the concrete, as in the case of any broad coalition, there were differences of opinion within this overall framework. We can boil it down those differences in this question. How much of existing government would you repeal? <laughs> how far would you go to roll the government back? I'm pretty sure you have an answer for how much used to be repealed 20th. <laughs> yeah. Um, the minimum demand uh, that almost all old writers agree, agreed on, which virtually defined the old right, was total abolition of the New Deal, the whole kit and caboodle of the welfare state, the Wango, the Wong, um the Wagner uh, Wagner Act. I'm going to get the right. The Social Security Act, going off gold in 1933 and all the rest. Beyond that, there was charming disagreements. Some would stop by repealing the New Deal. Others would press on to, um, to abolition of Woodrow Wilson's new freedom, including the Federal Reserve System, and explicitly that mighty instrument of tyranny, the income tax, um, and the Internal Revenue Service. So, other extremists, such as myself, would not stop until we repealed the Federal Judiciary Act of 1789, and maybe even in that single we stored the good articles of Confederation. I love reading Rothbard. <laughs> um, I think I wanted to add earlier. What, what was it at? Um, yeah, on this list of like the earliest things, like they all agreed upon, like you know, the welfare state, the social security act. Bringing up any of these things now is like seems we gotta get rid of. Immediately puts you in like the alt right camp. Yeah, I mean, really, what Rothbard is demonstrating here is that the Overton window. You you have to have an Overton window here, and you want to try to push it back as far as you can, but you got to have some point at which you're allowing people in um, to have not a, a big tent, an all-encompassing tent, but a big enough tent that you can, you know, succeed on something. And and repealing the New Deal was not just nothing. It, it, it was a lot. It was a huge thing. It was one of the biggest blows to liberty we have ever seen. There are, uh, I think, only comparable one really is is wilson um otherwise you know they there's still big blows to liberty but not nearly as much as as those two so yeah you got you got it you got to be bold in what you say and even uh, ab- abolishing the new deal was unpopular even shortly after the new deal you know he and he explains this later Mm-hmm. Um, or I, I don't want to say fully unpopular, but it, but a bold thing to say. Yeah. So uh, our messaging has to be bold, and and this 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 you know, let's get a, a few tax cuts. You know, <laughs> which he brings up later with the the the, the um, Beltway strategy of achieving liberty. Um, it, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. He has to stop and say that contrary to accepted myths, the original right did not disappear. This end was not discredited, discredited by our entry into World War II. On the contrary, the congressional elections of 1942, elections neglected by scholars, were a significant victory, not only for conservative Republicans, but for isolationist Republicans as well. Even though intellectual rightist opinion in books, especially in journals, was virtually blotted out during World War II, the right was still healthy in politics, and the press, which is the Hurset Press, the New York Daily, the New York Daily News, and especially the Chicago Tribune. After World War II, there was an intellectual revival of the old right, and the old right stayed healthy until the mid 1950s. Within the overall consensus, then, 
on the old right, there were many different there were many differences within the framework, but differences that remained remarkably friendly and harmonious. Oddly enough, these are precisely the friendly differences between the current paleo movement, free trade or protective tariffs, protective tariff, immigration policy and within the party immigration policy and within the policy of isolationism, was it to be doctrine isolation because of my own, or was it the United States would regularly intervene in the Western Hemisphere or in our neighboring countries of Latin America, or whatever this nationalist policy should be flexible among these various alternatives. Anything to add? I, I, I would like to, I think the next, after the next paragraph is the best way to demonstrate kind of the point I would like to make though on this whole idea. Sounds good. Other differences which also still exist are more philosophical. So it would be Lockeans, Hobbesians, or Burkeans. Natural writers, right right writers, or, <coughs> excuse me, or traditionalists or utilitarians. On political frameworks, it would be monarchists, second balance federalists, or radical decentralists, Hamiltons or Jeffersons, Hamiltonians or Jeffersons. One difference which agitated the right wing before the Buckleyite monolith managed to stifle all debate is particularly relevant to right wing strategy. The Marxists, who have spent a great deal of time thinking about strategy for their movement, Always pose the question, who is the agency of social, social change? What group may be expected to bring about the desired change in society? Classical Marxism found the answer. Found the answer easy, the proletariat. Then things got a lot more complicated. The p- presently oppressed womanhood minorities, etc. Was that, was that the yeah. if you wanted to talk about? Okay. Yeah, so I think here is where Rothbard really establishes where differences are actually hashed out so when it comes to the old right which i would say now is can be safely called the paleo right or the dissident right the differences that exist between us are um broadly what should be our immigration policy whether we should have free trade or a protective tariff and you know is what does isolationism mean does it mean the monroe doctrine isolationism which was you know defend the western hemisphere from the other from the um eastern hemisphere or um does it mean you know we're isolationists for the most part except for in this circumstances and in I think that's the really the one that is a little I don't think we should really allow that one in. But um, but yeah, these are where most of the differences come. And then they also come behind closed doors in the more intellectual space of a philosophical one. So are we Lockeans? Are we Hobbesians? Are we Burkeans? Um, Do we believe in national rights, traditionalism or are we right wing because it's utilitarian? Or what, or what should be the, the mode of function or, um, you know, Hamiltonians versus Jeffersons. But again, I think that's a problematic one because I think Hamiltonians are basically always bad. Um, but yeah, I think at the end of the day here, it's that as the dissident right, as the paleo right, um, and then with the old right as well, we all agree on something. We agree that what where we're at is bad. We agree that um, there needs to be some kind of regression, 
and that we need to dismantle the current state of affairs, the current regime, it's wrong. Um, how we do that and what that looks like afterwards is where we differ. But yeah. at the end of the day, we can succeed on um, dismantling this regime and then work out the finer details later or at least just get it in hopefully what is my approach which is the 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 hoppy in the um the uh paleo libertarian approach which is that everybody gets what they want in the terms of we get a a breaking up of this union and and smaller states kind of like the italian city states in which you get to choose your mode of governance you get to choose based on the values that reflect yours um but yeah um and and the same thing is largely true for the left uh the left has just been better at organizing and that's something um i think rothbard points out later uh and something we need to get better at yeah it seems like throughout this article it's gonna be a lot of of time to we're gonna start a topic and like he covers it better later yeah (laughs) that's how that's how great rothbard was anything we want to bring up he's gonna cover better um the relevant question for the right wing is the other side of the coin. Who can we expect to be the bad guys? Who are the agents of negative social change? Or what groups in society pose the greatest threats to liberty? Basically, there have been two answers on the right. One, the unwashed masses, and two, the powered elites. I will return this question in a minute. In the difference of opinion on of the question of diversity in the old right, I was struck by the remark that Tom Fleming's of Chronicles made. Tom noted that he was struck stuck in reading about that period that there was no party line, um, that there was no person or magazine excommunicating heretics, and there was no admirable diversity no admirable diversity of freedom none. There was admirable diversity of freedom of discussion on the old rights. Amen. In other words, there was no national review. <laughs> yeah, the National Review I, I'm uh, I'm picking up uh, Paul Goffrey's book on National Review and um Buckley soon. That's gonna be a sign to read because I I really can't stand Buckley, and I it's I love Burnham, but I can't stand Buckley in National Review. Was always always every time I read about Burnham and Buckley, I'm like, come on, Burnham, you're better than this. <laughs> you you were so much better than Buckley. Why did he have to associate with someone that terrible and everything? I, I can't remember if it's Burnham or someone who was like Burnham, but I think Rothbard even brings that up of of somebody on who who was at National Review who was more sympathetic to old right paleo right, uh, but was still at National Review and then kind of in this weird situation. Yeah. What was the old right position on culture? There was no particular position because everyone was imbued with and and loved the old culture. Culture was not an object of debate, either on the old right or, for that matter, anywhere else. Of course, they would have been horrified and incredulous at the activated victimology that has rapidly taken over our culture. Anyone who would have suggested to an old rightist of 1950, for example, that in 40 years the federal courts would be redrawing election districts all over the county so that Hispanics would be elected according to their quota and their population would have been considered a fit candidate for the loony bin, as well he might. Uh, yeah, yeah. This, this is one of the ham harder lines of, and this is one of those lines that people pull out of be like, Oh look, old Rothbard is is horrible compared to to you know, or I mean, uh, new Rothbard or late Rothbard is is horrible compared to earlier Rothbard. And I'm like, no, this is great. This is exactly <laughs> this is it hits it hits exactly at what characterizes being a dissident right, being paleo right, being old right, 
And that is, is that we didn't need a particular take on culture to divine all of us and for all of us to agree with, because I think we all agreed that past culture was better. That's what, what made, what brought us together, what makes us able to work together. Um, but just besides also agreeing that, um, we need to defeat the current regime is that we also look back at a different culture of a different time and culture that was better that we think is better than the current culture we have because a lot of people they, they go um you know oh well life is so much better now life is so much better now and the only thing they can really point to is technology we're not talking about technology. We're talking about culture. We're talking about the the yeah. the ethics, the the moral fabric of this society, and that's what we all agree on. Now, there's very much difference in where we should go uh, between dissident right people. You know, um, you may talk to one person, and they may say, oh, "Well, I want to go back to 1776, or I want to go back to 1865, or 18 whatever." And then some people say, I want to go back to the 1200s or the, um, <laughs> or the ADs or, 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 or the early ADs or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, that is, again, just an argument of form, a more intellectual one um, that can happen behind closed doors yeah. and doesn't have to happen in the political space and in public. Um, but, but it, it, it is, it is don't get me wrong. It is a disagreement that matters and has substantive yeah. things, but it's not as important as let's dismantle this regime. Yeah. I, I would so much love that there was a new, um, Zomba society, <laughs> not Zomba society. Um, what was it called? Um, so was it John, John Wendell Club? Was that the one that was um... – Well, the, the, the John Birch Society is one that Rothbard brings yeah. up, and it is a good organization. It's one that exists to this still day. Going. Yeah, I'm thinking of the yeah, most John Wendell Club. Work. That's oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think there's an equivalent of that now. Yeah, I would, I wish there was a, a good equivalent of like good, the new conservatives, well, new libertarians that would actually be. I, I will say there is a little bit of it, but it's it takes place mostly in Europe, and that mm -hmm. is a property and freedom society, Hoppe's yep. thing, um, because that has lots of dissident rights speakers, not just libertarians speaking, yeah. uh, but. It, it is like a European thing. So, only time I want to say Europe's better than America is when they have that. Yeah, yeah. So. It, I mean, you know, Europe has some it has advantages. It has its moments. Yeah. Okay. Um, what was I at? Uh, okay. And we, while I'm on this topic, this is the year is 1992. So I'm tempted to say, repeat after me: Columbus discovered America. <laughs> uh, even though. Even though a fan of diversity, only revisionism, I will permit on this topic whether Columbus discovered America or was it was um, uh, America America Vespucci. Vespucci. I'm, I'm trying to pronounce that because I'm, I'm not going to butcher yeah. the name. Um, I will say I find it hilarious that it brings up Columbus discovered America in 92, um, which this is a great point how how smart he was that this no one was going to happen next, you know? Yeah, you so, know, th th this is a great one because, um, you know, First of all, he's he's giving us representation for us Italian Americans, which you know, thank you. Rothbard was a great ally of the Italian Americans. You should see his um his article on uh, Goodfellas, the movie Goodfellas, and um, got the Godfather movies. Just talking about mafia movies in general, wonderful piece. Uh, but yeah, here is is kind of where he establishes a point that I think is important. Where like 
you know, their intellectual diversity is good to some extent, especially it's healthy in the dissident right space in the paleo right space, but it has its limits. You know, um, Rothbard was a historical revisionist, um, but there's some revision that's not good. And a lot of that is, you know, when it's targeting Western culture or the roots of it, stuff with like, like Columbus, stuff like the 1619 project, these kind of things that yeah. want to like revise culture um, most of the time, either to make things look, make things worse than they actually were in a way of guilt tripping people into being yes. leftist or to just straight up lie. And how would Zim's, how would Zim, how would Zim's book on America and his attack on Columbus? Um, yeah. And all I can think about, when I was thinking of Howard Zimmer Columbus, I think of that scene in The Sopranos where yeah. um, he's reading Howard, <laughs> he's reading Howard Zim, and Tony's like, he discovered America. That's what he did. He's a hero, and he's just yelling at his kid for going after Columbus. This that's a great episode. That's so that that is that is one of my favorite episodes. Um, yeah. But now, I, I mean, I'm thinking of Ross Bard's movie reviews. Um, I can't remember what it was. I something like, he did a movie movie review of a. Uh, some like artistic French movie, and he just he went at- French movies. Yes, yeah. oh, it was brutal. I need to find it, and I, I want to do a live reading of a Emily Watson movie review. It's like a fun Friday night kind of thing. Yeah, because um, there's some there's some funny ones. Um, here we go. Poor Italian Americans. They have never been able to make it to the accredited victim status. The only thing they got ever got was Columbus Day, and now they're trying to take it away. <laughs> Oh, if I may be pardoned a personal note, I joined the old white in 1946. I grew up in New York in 1930s and admitted what can only be called a communist culture. As a middle-class Jew, has middle-class Jews in North in, in New York, my relatives, friends, classmates, and neighbors faced only one great mortis in their lives. So they joined the communist party and devoted 100% of their lives to the cause, or so they remain fellow travelers and devote only a fraction of their lives. But this was the great reigns of debate. Yeah. There, there is where um, you know Rothbard establishes where the failures of the old right were, and the failure of the right in general is that we're too busy, um, at least in the public square and the public spaces and the and in the political space, we're too busy arguing over these intellectual disputes that aren't that don't really matter right now as much. Um, and not only don't really matter as much right now, uh, there's far greater, you know, more pressing things like dismantling the regime mm-hmm. while the leftists and why they've been so effective and have been winning for so long uh, is because their disagreements in the public spare square are, are you 100% dedicated? Are you 90%, 80%, 70%, and so on? Is how you, you're already on board with something. You're already on board on getting something done. How on board are you? Right. Uh, and But there were disagreements within them. He, he brings it up later. There are. There's the Trotskyites, the Stalinists, the Social Democrats, all these things. And they had arguments, but it was all in academia. It was all behind closed doors. It was not in the public space. And that's what's important, and what we need to learn here. Absolutely, there's, there's so much. I hate to say it, but there's so much to, to learn from the left. I wish they, I wish they weren't so good at what they did. You know? Yeah. 
the so good. I can't not respect it in a way. You know, it's like when you see a good salesman, it's like you're you're selling something you shouldn't be selling to someone who doesn't need to buy it. But I cannot. I respect the hustle and the skill. Like I, I was on the phone with the salesman for like twenty minutes of the day. I had no, I couldn't even afford what he was selling. But I stayed on for twenty minutes. I disrespected the craft. That's why I viewed the left. I like I can't despise, I despise you all, but I I respect the, the skill you have, what you're doing. Um here. I had two sets of aunts and uncles on both sides of the family who were in the Communist Party. The older uncle was an engineer who helped build a legendary Moscow subway. The younger one, younger one was an editor of the Communist-dominated Drug Workers Union, headed by one of the famous Fauna brothers. A Fauna? Fauna? I don't know. Um, but I hesitate. I, I, I hesitant. Hesitant to add that I am not in the current fashion, like Roseanne Ball on. Roseanne, Roseanne Ball honored the William F. Buckley Jr., claiming that I was a victim of child abuse. Buckley's claiming he was a victim of high crime, victim of the high crime of in, you know, Insokiant, I think. I think Insokiant. it's Insokiant. Insokiant anti Semitism at his father's dinner table. On the contrary, my father was an individualist, and he was strongly anti-communist and anti-socialist, who turned against the New Deal in 1938 because it had failed to correct the depression. A pretty good start in my high school. Uh, a pretty good start. In my high school and in my college career at Columbia University, I never met a Republican, much less anyone strongly right-wing. I relate to that. Um, I think the only people, the only guy I know who's like right-wing is my uh, one IRL, IRL, IRL Catholic friend. Everyone everyone for the like neolibs, and it's just uh, um, by the way, even though I'm admitting several, I am admittedly seven years younger than Daniel Bell, Irving Christo, and the rest, I must say that during all those years, I never heard of Leon Trotsky, much less of the Trotskyites. Until I got to graduate school after World War II, I was fairly, I was fairly politically aware, and in New York in those days, the left meant the Communist Party, period. So I think that Christo and the West are weaving party legends about the cosmic importance of the, de- of the debate between Trotskyites and Stalinists and alcoves, A and B, at the city college cafeteria. Anything to add? Um, yeah, I, again, I want to just reiterate the, the leftists, they had these debates behind closed doors. They had them in their little, their little party meetings. But at the end of the day, when it came to getting things done... They all were in consensus. They all agreed, and they. It was about how much the the individual person is con- con- contributing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the only Trotskyites were a handful of academics. By the way, there was a perspective saying in left wing circles in New York that Trotskyites all went to academia and the Stalinists all went into real estate. Perhaps that's why Trotskyists are wanting to, wanting the word. At Columbia College, I was the only one of two Republicans on the entire campus. The other being a literature major with whom I had little, I had little in common. Not only that, but a remo- not only that, but a remarkable thing for a cosmopolitan place like Columbia, Lawrence Chamberlain, distinguished political scientist and dean of Columbia College, admitted one time he had never met a Republican easel. <laughs> Um, by 1946, I became politically active and joined the Young Republicans in New York. Unfortunately, the Republicans in New York weren't much of an improvement. The Dewey, Rocky, the Dewey Rockefeller forces constituted the extreme right of the party, most of them being either pro-communists like Stanley Isaacs or social democrats like Jacob Javits. Yeah, I think it is Javits. Um, 
but yeah, I think again, he's just he is reiterating, you know, that point, hammering yeah. it in, but also uh, touching on something he touched really well on in uh, Anatomy of the State about just how the role of academics is kind of to shape public consensus and the public mm-hmm. mind. And um, that is why Trotskyites do rule the world is because they all went into academia and they became the subversive right, which became the neoconservatives and the Straussians of today who all do control p- politics. They do. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, they control politics so much that most political sciences you will meet are a Strauss are, are most likely a Straussian and they will even tell you that we yeah we Straussians control we control politics we define politics um in fact uh, a professor i had um this semester he sh- he straight up said to me he's like yeah Straussians control politics i don't consider myself a Straussian but you know like most of my coworkers do they say they say that Straussians do and, you know, if you ask the average elected official, they won't know what you're talking about. But then you ask their chiefs of staff, you ask their advisors, you ask them, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I know who Leo Strauss is. Sometimes they'll get angry because it's the whole point of Straussism is that it's secretive. It's behind closed doors. And, and that's why they're so effective is, I- uh, you know, no. to put it as a meme, put it um they they learned from Nico Machiavelli, who invented the art of lying in politics. I think Paul Goffrey has a book on Leo Strauss. Um, yeah, Leo Strauss and the Conservative Movement um, by Paul Gottfried. Yeah, I'm going to add it to my cart real quick because that sounds like I need to read it. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I'm sure it's a, a great read because uh, far too little people know about the Straussians and they are the major enemy. Um, but also the enemy that we can learn the most from. Mm. I did, however, have a fun writing. I did have fun writing a paper for the young Republicans announcing price controls and wind control. And after the Republican caps of Congress in 1946, I was ecstatic. My first publication ever was a hallelujah letter in the New York War Telegram, exhorting the now at last that now, at last, the Republicans' 80th Congress would repeal the entire New Deal, similar to my strategic acuum in, ni- in 1946. <laughs> I would have been great if that happened. Um, at any rate, I found the old right was I found the old right was happy there for a decade. For a couple of years, I was delighted to subscribe to the Chicago Tribune, whose every news item was filled with a great old right punch and analysis. It is forgotten now that the only organized opposition to the Korean War was not on the left, which ex- except for the Communist Party and I.F. Stone, fell for the chimera of Wilsonian Roosevelt. I know what the word is. I just put my, my, my mouth is not wanting to say. Yeah, Ro- Rooseveltian. Rooseveltian collective security, but was on the so-called extreme right, particularly in the House of Representatives. One of the la- one of the leaders was my friend Howard Buffett, congressman from Omaha, who was a pure libertarian and was Senator Taft's Midwestern campaign minister at the monster. Excuse me, at the monstrous Republicans. I think that would write monstrous Republican convention, not yet, 1952, when the Eisenhower-Warsby Cabal stole the election from Robert Taft. After that, I left the Republican Party only to return this year for the Buchanan campaign during the 1950s. I joined every right-wing third party I could find, most of which collapsed after the first meeting. <laughs> I supported the last president's distrust of the old right, the Andrew 
World ticket in 1956, but unfortunately never made it up to New York City. After this excursion on my personal activity and the old rights, I returned to a key strategic question. Who are the major bad guys, the unwashed masses or the power elite? Very early, I concluded the big danger is the elite and not the masses for the following reasons. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I do want to just move back a little back to what he yeah. just said about um, the Eisenhower Wall Street cabal stealing the election from Taft, which is definitely what happened. Um, <laughs> and I think it, it draws a lot of parallels to what happened to Buchanan um, in the 90s and what happened to Ron Paul in 08 and 2012. Um, and I think what that event and those events really show is um, how can we as the dissident right, the paleo right, the libertarian right, how do we avoid that kind of situation in the future? How How is it that we can prevent them from stealing these things? And I think uh, that's one that I don't think um, Rothbard fully answers. And I think part of it is that uh, I think at this time he d- didn't see the stealing of, of Buchanan's election. Um I, I can't remember when bu- the, bu- the election and that I'm thinking of was um, the exact year, but you know, I, I think it was because he hadn't been burned enough, but if he had, I think he would have, you know, wrote, okay, let's, let's think about this, what, find an answer to it. Um, but you know, really the only answer I can come to now is that it, you know, the, the federal level is kind of lost um, you know, That's there's small little things that we can do there. Most of it is is dis- dispersing that message and using mouthpieces, which is, I think, the main role that like people like Thomas Massey and Rand Pauls are serving right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, it is we got a local state up, and it'll trickle up into hopefully secession or at least soft secession, something like yeah. that. No, oh. absolutely. Yeah, I, I after the last president's election, I kind of came to the conclusion that yeah, they ain't, there's no way you can. Um, they won't let you win. <laughs> and if you do win, they're not gonna let the guy do anything. And so this is no. I don't think there's really much of a the risk reward for it and the amount of money and time spent on big campaigns and federal elections. I just it's not worth it in my opinion. It's better just to focus locally and hopefully trickle up of political change or success. In. But um. First, even granting for a moment that the masses are the worst possible, that they are perpetually hell-bent on lynching anyone down the block, the mass of people simply don't have the time for politics or political shenanigans. The average person must spend most of his time on daily business of life, being with his family, seeing his friends, etc. He can only get interested in politics or engage in it sporadically. The only people who have time for politics are the professionals, the bureaucrats, the politicians, and a special interest group dependent on political rule. They will make money out of politics, and so they are interest- They are intensely interested in lobby and are interested in lobby and are effective twenty four hours a day. Therefore, these special interest groups will tend to win out over the uninterested masses. This is a basic insight of the public choice school of economics. The only other group interested in full time. Only other groups interested full-time in politics are ideologists like ourselves. Again, not a very large uh, segment of the population. So the problem is the ruling elite, the professionals, and their dependent special interest groups. Yeah, I think he's, I mean, he's, I, I think of the fact that uh, most of my I was also interested in politics, like year-round, year but all my friends and family, they only want to argue about it with me during election seasons. <laughs> 
You know, it'd be like the big a month and a half when I would be at my friend's house and I'd be at the dinner table and I'd be arguing, I'd be like 15, 14, and I would be arguing him on dinner long, my friend's dad, about politics. And he was very interested in it. But the moment the election was over, they had no interest in discussing it and they didn't care. It was only for like two months they actually wanted to talk politics. And this kind of points, kind of reinforces that point that, yeah, people don't have time for it. And they only really can do it in Windows and sort sort burst. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. For, for a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that's the consensus for the majority of the population. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm, to, I'm torn a little bit because it's like, on one hand, I think it's better when people don't worry about politics because I think that means it's um, the happier. But at the same time, I understand that they, they're not paying attention to is causing a, a, a problem to sink. It, it is a so difficult... The line they have to walk. It's a difficult line, um, and the way the line was uh, kind of settled before the modern state, before the advent of democracy, was um, that your leaders would change a lot based on um, disputes and even wars sometimes, um, or a good chunk of the time, between nobles and uh, that rarely really impacted the general life of the normal citizen. Uh, and so that's how that dispute was. Or, um, you know, because the line between the ruled and the ruler was so clear, you know, a revolution was actually possible or, or, or uh, overthrow or whatever it may be. Um, but as, you know, Hoppe will explain in Democracy, the God that failed, then something Rothbard touches on in Anatomy of the State, uh, a big thing that happens with the modern state and the in democracy is that the delineation between who's the ruled and the ruler is very skewed. And often people think they are a part of the ruler class uh, because they have a vote. Um, <laughs> and so they become very content uh, in this and say, well, um, the current conditions are because of my fault, which, you know, to some extent they are, but um there is a, a way to change it and the way to change it a lot of the time is changing your rulers. Yeah. Um, but that's not seen as an option because we, we are all the rulers um, yeah. and it's, you know, we yeah. can just vote out that guy, even though he has the same incentives to do exactly what the last guy did. But yeah, oh, absolutely. We've got to vote harder. Now get out and vote. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Bailey, well, I will not even, I think, Half one, we're not even, we're barely a, qu- a quarter into this, and uh, it's already been an hour or 50 minutes. Let's go for a bit longer. This probably has to be maybe probably three parts because I don't think we're gonna be getting this on too. Yeah, I, I'm that's totally fine with me. Uh, a second crucial point society is divided into a ruling elite, which is necessarily a minority of the population and lives off the second group. The rest of the population, he would point, has most brilliant essays on. Political philosophy ever win. John C. Cal- Calhoun's disquisition on government. I'm probably not saying that word correctly. Uh, Calhoun pointed out that the very fact of government and taxation creates inherent conflicts between two great classes: those who pay taxes and those who live off them. The net ta- the net tax payer for the tax consumers. The bigger government gets, Calhoun noted, the greater and more intense the conflict between those two social classes. Um, I want to make a quick point on this where um, the Calhoun point, I think, is very evocative of uh, a dialectic by Hegel called the master-slave dialectic, which is basically the idea 
that society and civilization is a conflict between slaves and masters. It doesn't mean it in a very literal sense. It is, you could replace it with the ruled and the rulers and that the goal of the slaves is to replace the current masters and become the masters themselves. And that's what civilization is. Uh, and the masters is to continue being the master yeah. um, as much as they can. And I think that's the same thing here where the, the masters in this case is the um, tax consumers. Um, so politicians, um, people who live solely off of welfare, stuff like that. These are the people who benefit the most from the current society. And then, you know, the net taxpayers, the people who don't receive benefits, even some people who do receive benefits, actually quite a lot of people who receive benefits. Um, they're still net taxpayers. Um, and just, and just, you know, the producers of society, the people who give us what actually makes society and builds civilization. Yeah. And so uh, I think, you could also describe it as just the low time preference individuals versus high time preference individuals. Um, what was that? Yep. Calhoun noted that the greater, the more in, greater and more intense the conflict between these two social classes. By the way, I've never thought of Governor Pete Wilson of California as a distinguished political theorist, but the other day he said something presumably, presumably unwittingly that was remarkable, Calhounian. Wilson lamented that tax recipients in California will begin to outnumber the taxpayers. Well, it's a start. Yeah, that's another great one where it's kind of like this is a parasitic system. Mm -hmm. The master-slave dichotomy is a parasitic system. The um, dichotomy of taxpayers versus net uh, net taxpayers versus tax net tax consumers. Um, low time preference versus high time preferences. That one group has to be a parasite on the other. And, you know, we're getting to a point where the parasites outweigh the, um, the hosts. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really, you know, rough way of putting it. And, and I know, but <laughs> that is literally what it is. We are having more consumers and producers. And so uh, as, as Jeff Dice put it, we are um, at a choice of whether we want to be capital destroyers or capital accumulators and the path we're going down is towards capital destruction not accumulation yeah if a minority of elites rule over rule over tax and exploit the majority of the public then this brings up starkly the main problem of political theory what i like to call the mystery of civil obedience why does the majority of public of the public obey these turkeys Anyway, the problem, I believe, was solved by these great political theorists, mainly but not all libertarian. Um, you want to... It's a French <laughs> name. I'm not going to... No. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I know how to pronounce French names, um, even though I don't like the French. But uh, <laughs> Etienne de la Beauté, I think is how you pronounce that. The last name, um, the rest of them are a little... Uh, that one's pretty difficult for me, yeah. but... French libertarian seers of the mid-16th century, David Hume and Ludwig von Mises, they point out that precisely because the ruling class is a minority in the long run, forces per se cannot rule. Force per se cannot rule. Even in the most despotic dictatorship, the government can only persist when it has when it is backed by the majority of the population. In the long run, ideals, not force, rule. Any government has to have legitimacy in the eyes of the public. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, 
I'm pretty sure I want to, I want to agree with that. I I not necessarily so I agree with the part of the ideas rule. Um, I, I think he's right that force doesn't rule, but I'm not necessarily it's the ideas rule. So, I I'm going to say that he is he is completely correct here, and the reason why I think he's completely correct here is because I think a lot of people are going to take it as oh well ideology rules. People are you know driven by ideology. No, that's actually not what he's saying. He is saying that ideas, not force, rule. Because the only reason why force is implemented is is force in, is is taken under with a certain purpose. Well, so let's like take self-defense for example if i'm going to defend my home from a robber and you know shoot him the reason i'm i'm doing that is because i have the idea that he is a threat to me Mm -hmm. um you know in some cases there are cases where somebody comes into you know your home and they're not a threat in the sense that they're not they're not their goal is not to harm you um per se but i still have that idea and that's why i use the force Um, and, and, and another one is an example of, is that a violent revolution doesn't happen until there is the idea that is formed in the mind of the public that the ruler is no longer fit to rule. So that's when the force is implemented. So that's what he means by ideas rule in the long run. That was a good clarification because I I was really idea with ideology and that's probably because I'm just, I I think if you, maybe, maybe this is a 90s thing and I'm just reading it like, you know. Like it's 2020, and I'm ideas always mean like, like is people story ideology for ideal and a lot of stuff I read nowadays. I think maybe that was just a language thing, but thank you for clarifying that because I think that was a, a good point to clarify because I want to make sure people get I, what Ross was actually saying. He 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 is, I think, taking a very Straussian approach of that, like, you know, the the reason we need force because it puts ideas into motion. Um, but but also that like the only reason we have this force or we want to do use this force is because the idea exists that we want to use it, you know? Yeah. Well, we've gone for almost an hour. I'm going to say we, we stop here before we get more into the, the, the uh, meat of some of this. Um, yeah. Because the next part is, is, is just a, a complete proof of, of yeah. what he's trying to say. <laughs> yeah, if, we were, if we were to go into that, we'd have to go into the 30 minutes. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm going to stop saying the screen and, um, well, real quick, give your thoughts on what we've read so far, and then we're going to give you a plug, and we'll go from there. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Um, yeah, I, I want to wrap up and say, uh, for the most part here, what is important here is that so far what you should be taking from it is that coalitioning is good. Building a coalition is good, and this coalition should be the dissident right, the paleo right. Um, and that, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. They don't need to be 100% libertarian or purist or anything like that. Yes. Um, but as long as they have that, that they want to dismantle the regime, that's the most important thing. And that they have a love for a culture that is not the current culture. They are an ally. They are an ally so long as is the current regime exists. Absolutely. When the, you know, the friend of the, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, he may turn out, he may become my enemy at some point, um, but he's not my enemy right now. And I want to get rid of the current enemy. And hopefully in that cooperation, we move 
them towards us, which is another thing he brings up of like, we need to get into the intellectual space. And as we did with the old right, we need to set the terms of debate because we need to have that fleshed out ideology and dis- disseminate it through academia and, and behind these closed door debates. Yeah. Um, I see the question I want to ask you, like where, where is the um, intellectual side? I think where is the intellect? Where, the, where is the intellectual content being held today? Cause I don't, think the academia seems to be falling behind or not falling behind but seems to become less and less of an importance with online schooling and all the other things going on where is the um where is the place this actually go because i used to have a series of people the libertarians and white wing people need to basically do a march through the university like left did but the university is going down where, where is where do you think is going to be the place of actual intellectual discourse happening next so i mean it happens where it's it's always happened, and that is, you know, the the private spaces, the right wing spaces. So these can be, they could be anything from discords. They could be podcasts like this. They could be, um, they, there still is places in academia where this thing, where these thing debates happen. Um, George Mason is a very good example mm-hmm. at the econ department. There are people think of it as solidly libertarian. It's not. It's, you know, kind of a coalition of the old right. It it, it very much is. There's plenty of disagreements that happen. But at the end of the day, they all agree. Markets are good. We should have markets. um, The freer, most likely the better, um, which is not I don't think is the greatest place to align. But it's still it's it's somewhere. Um, the same thing with places like Hillsdale College. Um, I think the University of Chicago still has that to some extent. Um, but yeah, I'll, it, it, um, the John Birch Society still exists. These organizations exist. These activist organizations get involved in the closed-door events of those or where these debates should happen. But also, um, you know, uh, and, and it's brought up later in the essay of like, uh, you got to get into the actual political underpinnings where the ideology is formed of political actors is in their offices it's when people lobby to them it's their chief of staffs telling them stuff it's their staff telling them stuff that's how we get there if we get more people in those positions we will see a natural flow more towards this this to the right and stuff um there's too much focus about winning the election and not what to do after the election mm. um, Absolutely. and so yeah yeah that was that was great that was all great this is a this is a lot of fun i am super excited to do the next one um i've realized live readings are so much easier to do than book clubs <laughs> so i'm gonna probably do uh, let me listen i'm probably do a lot more live readings coming up because um the time I get, sit down and do a live reading for an hour is so much easier to happen to read an entire book. Like, imagine trying to do a book about human accent. Yeah. You know, I, it's just, it's not, I'm not going to do that. So, um, anyway, people, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. Where can people find you at? Yeah, you can find me on YouTube at Repeal the 20th Century, on Spotify at Repeal the 20th Century, Odyssey, Repeal the 20th Century, on Twitter, Repeal the 20th. I do have a Facebook page as well. Don't really use it that much. Um, so if you use Facebook. And then finally, I have my Substack, um, which is also Repeal of the 20th Century. I suggest following that because you'll get an if, – if you subscribe to that, you'll get an outflow of all my content, whether it's written work, um, either specifically for the Substack or it gets published somewhere. Like today I had something published at Mises, um, and it's on my Substack as well with a link to the original article. 
Um, and then also my interviews with, um, you know, uh, academics of all kinds or politicians. I try to interview people who have some, you know, contribution that they have made to the movement and, and have, you know, very substantive ideas. Um, so great, I would check those out. It's a great well. sell. It's a really um, good sell. But I also want to um, hopefully in the near future get into some video essay work uh, at the very least converting a lot of articles I've already written into um, audio and video format um, for easier consumption. So keep a lookout for those as well. Wonderful. And um, keep a lookout for hopefully tomorrow uh, a stream interview with um, Marcel Gutro. Well, I'm yeah. excited to see that. Uh, I love when you, his, his link, your link tree is in the description. So anybody who wants to find Tim can go to the description and check it out. I highly look when you go and subscribe. I, I do my best not to miss an episode. I really enjoy your show, man. It, it is fun. You, you get a lot of really good, like, um, high-level guests. Like, your Zeph Dice episode was really good. The Happy Liberty one was um, – I, I really enjoyed that one because he – even though I, one thing I will say Popular Liberty, every show he goes on, becomes the same topic. A lot of it is the same, like anti-tax, that kind of stuff. But like, I'm glad I, I, I'm still hearing it all, over and over again. Um, and you, you did actually ask me off with some decent questions that he doesn't normally get asked. So I really enjoyed the episode. So uh, good job on that one. Anyway, guys, um, make sure you like, comment, share, subscribe. Um, you don't want to miss the next next couple parts of the live reading we're going to be doing. And uh, yeah, have, have have a good night. <music>